0: At Trasimene, Hannibal once again savaged Rome. But how did he do this? What decisions did he make? Why was there outrage at Rome before all of this happened? And what's the deal with Hannibal and makeovers? Find out as I talk about the Battle of Lake Trasimene on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome. My name's Neil. And I'm continuing the topic of the Second Punic War with a look at what happened up to and during Trasimene. My previous episode unwrapped Hannibal's march into Italy and how he set a trap for Rome at Trebia. In this episode, I'm going to follow a similar template. I'm going to talk about the characters involved, the decisions taken and obviously the battle itself. Now, you can find me on Twitter at Ancient Blogger, or at Hound Ancient, which is the podcast Twitter handle. I'm also on TikTok and Instagram as Ancient Blogger, and I'll be transcribing this episode on my website AncientBlogger.com It'll be in a post along with maps, sources I've used and content I think might make the episode a bit more useful. Certainly this episode has me detailing routes marched and the descriptions of the battlefield. I'll describe as best I can but sometimes a good old map just does the trick. Finally, all dates are BCE, which means I can save my voice. And as ever, if you can rate or review this podcast on the platform you're listening to, then please do. And that now includes Spotify, by the way. It makes a huge difference to indie podcasters like myself. OK, then, let's begin. In late December 218, Hannibal had brought about a masterful victory against a Roman army at Trebia. To the new Celtic allies, the tribes in northern Italy who had been old enemies of Rome, here was a bandwagon which was becoming ever more appealing. As I mentioned in the episode on Trebia, northern Italy wasn't Roman. It was a land of various tribes, some allies, but mostly hostile to Rome, and it had been here that Hannibal had sought to establish links and alliances. Not only would they offer him something close to a safe haven, they'd also be vital in supplying his his army with fresh warriors. Those that had marched with Hannibal from Spain, for example, the African and Iberian troops, were highly valued by Hannibal in both their skills and experience. They couldn't be replaced, but the Celtic soldiery could, and at Trebia, Hannibal had sought to use these to take the brunt of the Roman line and therefore take the most casualties. Following the victory at Trebia, Hannibal made camp near Placentia, modern-day Piacenza, possibly using the remnants of the Roman camp there. Though he'd been successful, Hannibal was certainly aware of a couple of key issues. The first was that Rome hadn't been defeated, it had been beaten. But this was the first of many victories he would need if he was to avenge his family and the cause of Carthage. In the First Punic War, Rome had demonstrated that it was able to draw on large reserves of manpower. And from the outset, Hannibal's overarching strategy aimed to unpick Rome from its allies. The second point, and perhaps more pressing, was that though he'd given the Celtic tribes a taste of victory, they were hungry, in fact ravenous. They weren't satiated with one success, they wanted more. There was also a wider political game at play here. The tribes weren't exactly good neighbours to each other, and Hannibal's success had upset the balance between them. This may have caused resentment from those tribes who felt that Hannibal might have his favourites, for example the boy, and this could be behind one of the oddest tales involving Hannibal you will hear. Polybius wrote that Hannibal was at risk from an assassination by a Celt, perhaps funded by Rome, but as likely by jealous rivals. To confuse would-be assassins, Hannibal changed his look daily, and this included wearing different wigs. Is it true? Eh, possibly. It sounds strange, but it's not entirely implausible. Hannibal's movements during the winter were largely formed of resupplying his army and moving south to near what is modern-day Bologna. The Roman historian Livy, however, has him making a series of marches in the region. This culminated in a failed attempt to cross the Apennines, a mountain range which I'll describe shortly. This has been viewed as fiction, a nice bit of drama, and echoing the dramatic account Livy gave of Hannibal crossing the Alps, but not something Hannibal would have envisaged doing, not at that time. The real drama during the winter and early spring wasn't found in a mountain pass. It was found in the streets of Rome. The elections for a consul at this time took place mid-winter with each assuming office in mid-march. Gnaeus Servilius Geminus and Gaius Flaminius were the men chosen with the Carthaginian commander as the number one to do on their to-do list. Geminus was from the famed Servilius family and though the Geminus branch was a more recent one he could point to an ancestor as consul in 495 when Rome was a hatchling republic. More recently his own father had been a consul in 252 and 248. Cut him and he'd bleed patrician blood as old as the hills Rome stood on. In stark contrast was his colleague Flaminius. The story of Trasimene is as much about Hannibal's victory as it was Flaminius's fall from grace. Here was a character like Longus before him plucked from a Greek tragedy. As you'll hear the sources were unfair and were always keen to show him his worst. Yet he's fascinating, so it's worth understanding him and his background. Flaminius was a novus homo, or new man, and this didn't mean he had progressive views about equal pay. It meant that he had no political lineage. Were you to be invited round to his home, there wouldn't be a proud array of ancestral busts of consuls or famous men he could point to and recount a story about. In 232, he had arrived on the scene, becoming a tribune of the plebs. This position required the advocate for the lowest class and could act as a check and balance against the consuls. In 227, he became praetor, a senior political office, and not just any praetor. He was the praetor in charge of Sicily. A few years later, in 223, he achieved the highest political office, becoming consul. It was here that we encounter a theme which was to become something both Livy and Polybius would tag him with, that he was disobedient to both the gods and the senate. A loose cannon in the heart of government. It started with an incident in 223. Flaminius was leading an army in northern Italy against the tribes there. The auspices on his march weren't favourable, but he carried on, and the senate sent a dispatch to stop him immediately. Flaminius, knowing what the dispatch contained, carried on and defeated the Insubreids in a large battle. Reading the account in Polybius, you wouldn't know he was in charge. Credit is doled out to everyone involved apart from from Famillinius, and when he's mentioned, it's to criticise his choice of battlefield and how he arranged the troops. Returning to Rome, his next battle was to earn the triumph, which was initially refused to him by the Senate, but then overturned by the people. In the episode on Trebia, I compared the two consuls there to an 80s sitcom involving chalk and cheese characters living together and here we can extend it to the 80s cop show where the anti-hero doesn't do things by the book but damn it he gets results and in the modern period the tendency has been to depict Flaminius as an agitator a firebrand who was set against the stuffy senators and their ancestry but this doesn't fit as snugly as you might think in fact. Flaminius had a stellar career which found opposition in the Senate at points, as you'd expect, but was also facilitated through that same political body. Following his triumph and consulship, he became a censor. In 220, he oversaw construction of the Flaminian Way. This was a road stretching from Rome northeast to Ariminum. It measured 296 kilometres or 184 miles and opened up access into northern Italy where Rome was trying to expand as well as to the Adriatic coast, a road which facilitated trade and war. How very Roman. In the midwinter elections following Trebia, he'd again come to the consulship, perhaps with those military successes he had in mind. Yet things didn't go smoothly. It was expected, well actually required, that a new consul needed to be sworn in and to undergo a number of rights before he could take up his position in that spring. Once these had been undertaken, he could then go about his business and link up with his army. But Flaminius was suspicious that he'd be stalled in Rome, that his political enemies might delay the needed rights or interpret the inauspices as unclear. In short, anything to keep him from getting out into the field and to face Hannibal. So Flaminius faked a much needed visit out of Rome, met up with his army and made camp near Aretium on modern day Arezzo. For Livy, this caused outrage back at Rome. The Senate voted for his immediate recall and to quote Livy, dragged back if necessary and compelled to perform in person all the duties of his office." Two individuals were even sent to demand his return. You can probably guess how that went. Omens and bad portents were seen around Italy and reported to Rome, which undertook a number of rituals to placate the gods. One was the expansion of a festival which would take place later that year in December. It would have a lector added. This was a Greek ritual in which the gods were represented at a feast in the form of wooden idols. The festival is called the Saturnalia and you might have heard of it. Yeah, of course, I have actually done a podcast episode on it. So Flaminius in a way helped found a drunken midwinter party, which is often referred to nowadays. So not all bad then. Whether Flaminius ever did march out and avoid his obligations is questionable. Polybius fails to mention it. It's possible to imagine a situation where Flaminius either sped through the rites, performed some or performed them all before getting his army into place. What is certain is that impiety and impetuousness were qualities which become his thematic soundtrack. And we'll hear more about this later. Both consuls took their respective armies, approximately 25,000 in size, to strategic points. Flaminius as mentioned set his at Auretium whilst Geminus was stationed at Ariminum, modern-day Rimini. I'll get into why in a moment but now I'm going to turn to Hannibal. In the episode on Trebia I was able to give a generally accepted figure for the size of Hannibal's army, specifically the army which descended those Alps. With the addition of the Celts it was estimated to have been around 40,000 when Hannibal defeated Rome at Trebia. The Roman army that day had been around the same size, but differed in composition. Rome had far more infantry, and this reflected their preferred tactic of bulldozing the enemy. Hannibal's army had more lighter troops and cavalry, which he used to devastating effect. Hannibal would have known that any marching army would lose men through attrition. The challenge was the balancing act between an army which could stack up numerically against those Rome could throw against it, and mobility. Hannibal would be operating in enemy territory in his march south, so large armies would be logistically difficult to supply and slow. It's spring in 217, and Hannibal is moving his army estimated at around 40,000 south. But where would they go, and what were the choices Hannibal had? I'll try and explain as clear as I can, but don't forget those maps I've included in the show notes on ancientblogger.com. I'll start with the basics. The Italian peninsula, the narrow strip of land, which measures around 200 kilometres or 124 miles in width and ends up in the famous boot shape, is split more or less down the middle by a mountain range called the Apennines. They're in fact separate ranges, but form what is best described as a spine. This spine doesn't attach to the Alps at the top of Italy, but instead curves to the west. When Hannibal had descended from the Alps and fought at Trebia, he'd been above the curve, But as he moved south to Bologna, he now sat on the eastern side of the mountain range. He now had to choose to either stay on the eastern side of the mountains and move south or cross and move down the western side of the Italian peninsula. If Hannibal chose to stay on the eastern side, he wouldn't need to cross the mountains. He could then gain access to the south of Italy. In addition, he might be able to draw support from across the Adriatic Sea to the east here, Rome had been fighting a series of wars known as the Illyrian Wars, and Rome's enemies there might be of use. The western option involved crossing the Apennines and moving south past Rome. There was some excellent farmland here, and it also had a number of wealthy regions, so from a logistical perspective, it was very attractive. Both options offered what I think was Hannibal's key strategic objective to dislocate Rome from its allies. You see, Rome didn't expand in a vacuum. It had absorbed and defeated a number of tribes in the Italian peninsula and like any grown empire relied on them. Hannibal could weaken Rome severely by reorientating the political map, bringing those tribes and cities to his side. Because fewer allies meant less for Rome in all aspects, from manpower to general goods. It could also start a chain reaction with Rome eventually diminishing to becoming a minor player that it once was. Hannibal chose, as he was wont to do, the less obvious. Rather than stay on the eastern side, he chose to cross the Apennines and push through on a march as arduous as anything he had done. We don't know the exact rationale for his decision, but Lancel makes a very good point when he considered a significant danger of marching on the eastern side, not that it was too hard to move across, but that it was too easy the land south of bologna was nice and flat easy for any army to move across and this would be the same for the roman armies earlier i mentioned that these had been stationed at ariminum under geminus and at aretium under flaminius and now it's important to understand why the army at ariminum under geminus was there to check against hannibal moving south down the eastern side of italy likewise the army under flaminius at aretium was there in case Hannibal made to cross the Apennines and move down the western side. With the easy terrain on the eastern side so close to Araminum, the danger was that Hannibal might be caught by both forces. Geminus could move quickly to intercept him, knowing that Flaminius could make a quick move to join up. Hannibal would then be facing an army numerically the same as his, or more, and though he had a far, far better quality of troops, he couldn't risk an encounter with both armies because even if he won, he'd likely suffer a large amount of casualties, and this would hamstring his campaign. The Western route meant the opposite. Geminus wouldn't be able to move as quickly and join up with Flaminius. It would be a tough march, though. In fact, a hellish one. Before I begin this torrid tale, here are some words from the Misrepresented podcast.
1: Growing up, I always felt uncomfortable in history class. We study the past to better understand our present. I felt awkward though, because I wasn't a part of that past. My family is from India, so we didn't really contribute very much to the Western world. Or at least that's what I was taught. Representation isn't always about inserting new stories and voices into present-day narratives. It's also about rethinking the way we represent our past. So that's what this podcast is going to do. Each episode, we will tell you a story about a time when South Asians' role in history has been skewed or erased. We are also interested in uncovering why the real story got twisted in the first place. Sometimes it's because a colonial power needed to rewrite the past to justify their rule. Other times it was a marketing campaign that needed to zhuzh things up a bit to sell more tea. But no matter the why, misrepresentation is rarely a mistake.
0: Thanks again there to the Misrepresented podcast. And if you've got a podcast and you'd like to swap ads, just give me a shout. Now. Back to that torrid tale. After departing Bologna or near it, Hannibal took his army across the Apennines. The exact route isn't known, though the Passo della Paretta, otherwise known as the Passo della Collina, is strongly suggested. This wasn't particularly demanding, a mere speed bump compared to the march many of Hannibal's men had been on, and this brought him out near modern day Pistoia, around 30 kilometers or 18 miles northwest of another but more famous modern city, Florence. 1,500 or so years after Hannibal arrived north of Florence, one of its most famous sons, Dante, composed the Divine Comedy. This consisted of the Inferno and the famous Nine Circles of Hell. The third circle was kept for the gluttons, and like the others, wasn't somewhere you'd want to visit. It was described as a freezing mire of slush and filth. It was this type of landscape that Hannibal now had to cross as the Po River had flooded the land to the south for three days. The army were denied rest, as there was no dry ground. The only time you could sleep was on the corpse of a dead pack animal. The Celts had no experience of this type of march, and this was added to them being placed at the back of the column and they waded through mud which had been churned by thousands in front of them, and added to with both animal. And human waste, though the Celts received the brunt of the march, Hannibal also suffered an eye infection caused the loss of one of his eyes, but as he arrived on firm ground, he might have been happy with his progress. The pack animals lost could be replaced, and Celts recruited the march had also ensured that he'd only be facing one consular army, not two, and his prized troops hadn't suffered too much. It had been tough, but the tactical objective had been achieved. The next decision was what to do about Flaminius and his army in nearby Aretium Attacking a consular army which was dug in would be suicide for any number of reasons. Sieges were costly, they required specialist equipment, and Hannibal had a force which wasn't rich in heavy infantry, the necessary cannon fodder in sieges. It would also leave him wide open for an attack. Perhaps Flaminius wondered what might happen next, and top of his list of fears, would have been what Hannibal did. He just waltzed on by and moved south. The lands here, roughly Mondae Chianti, were bursting with villas and farmland, all now ripe for plundering, and Hannibal ensured that his supplies were restocked. But there was more than a simple logistical aspect to this. As I mentioned earlier, there was that overarching political strategy. Rome had expanded and absorbed these lands due to its military muscle, which was now very evidently absent. Here was Hannibal showing that Rome wasn't the protector it claimed to be. In Chianti Hannibal may have lacked fava beans but he was eating well all the same. From Aretian, Flaminius rightly seethed at what was going on around him. As a consul with a triumph behind him and as a man of action he couldn't stand by and watch. But here Livium Polybius portray him ignoring the advice of his officers to hold and wait for Geminus to join him. Worse still disagreement came from the gods themselves in the form of bad omens. The horse Flaminius mounted to give the orders threw him. and One of the army standards stuck fast in the ground, resisting those who tried to pull it out. Here we find that soundtrack I spoke about earlier, Flaminius the impious and impetuous. But most likely none of this happened. Or if there were bad omens, they were exaggerated. The truth was that Flaminius couldn't allow Hannibal to pass him by. His whole purpose was to prevent exactly what was going on. It's quite an achievement on Livy's part to paint a perfectly rational response in such a way as to make Flaminius seem foolish. In truth, some of his later actions can be seen this way, but not in doing what he did next. Flaminius got his army of some 25,000 men and started the pursuit of Hannibal. Though Flaminius had a smaller force, it didn't mean it was as mobile as Hannibal's. The Roman army wasn't anywhere near as well drilled. Flaminius might hope to chase him down, but Hannibal could only be caught when he wanted to be. The question on everyone's lips must have been where Hannibal was heading to. Rome was only 175 kilometres, or 108 miles, to the south. No real distance to an army which had sent out from southern Spain. But this can't have been a serious proposition. An army unable to take a with Flaminius in camp wasn't about to try and take on a huge city with a large garrison and a consular army following behind. Hannibal continued south, presumably sending his scouts ahead or connecting with any intelligence he had in the area. Soon the news arrived that he had the perfect location for what he needed next. Swerving east, he made for Lake Trasimene or Trasimeno as it's known today. Today, the lake covers approximately 128 kilometers squared, that's around 50 square miles, and it's approximately six meters in depth. The northern shoreline of the lake has receded in the modern age, and it was here where the action took place. Needless to say, the sources didn't come with GPS coordinates, and given the change of the shoreline, there is some debate as to the exact location of the battle. However, there is a generally un- agreed map we can pin to the events, and of course, This will appear in the show notes. When Hannibal arrived at Lake Trasimene, he did so near modern-day Borghetto. He then marched east through a gorge which opened up into a narrow plain along the northern shore of the lake. This curved round to the southeast as far as modern-day Torricella. Overlooking this plain was a chain of hills. It was at the end of these hills that Hannibal made camp. The exact location isn't clear exactly, but he did so With the objective of being seen. In fact, this was vital. Flaminius now knew where Hannibal was and realized he finally had the Carthaginian where he could get him. He set up camp near to what is now Tenontola. The next day, he'd march through the gorge, lead his men along the plain, and form up, ready to take on Hannibal. Even prior to the march, we're told that his troops were licking their proverbial lips at the prospect of victory, some even weighed down with chains which they'd be using to secure all the prisoners they could then sell. That night whilst Philemonius' men slept Hannibal moved some of his units from the camp and along those hills north of the plain. The cavalry was sent the western end overlooking where the gorge opened into the plain. The Celts and Light Infantry were stationed east of them. If you were seeing this from above you would see Hannibal's men dotted along those hills overlooking the plain. The cavalry at the far left and the Celts and Light Infantry along the centre. These were to remain in cover. Hannibal's plan hinged on the Roman column marching by them, completely unaware. The African and Iberian troops were stationed at the eastern end of the plain, on a hill along with Hannibal. And unlike the others, these weren't hidden. In fact, it was important that they were seen. It would be these troops, Hannibal's most experienced, who'd be tasked with holding the line against Rome. On the morning of the 21st of June, Flaminius broke camp and moved his army out. As they marched through the gorge and onto the plain, they would have been able to make out a force, which we know as the Iberian and African troops, further to the east. Flaminius hadn't sent out scouts because why did he need to? There, after all, was the enemy. He knew where the camp was. You could see them. The Roman column measured some five miles in length, according to Goldsworthy, and this snaked along the plain. As they marched, A few might have paused to admire the fog hanging on the hills to the left and on the lake to the right. It must have seemed picturesque. But out of the fog to the left of them came the noise of hooves, men shouting in strange languages, and was that a Celtic war cry? Before Romans could even begin to form up, Hannibal's hidden forces attacked from their concealed position and smashed into the left flank of the Roman column as it marched. Armies in this period, or at least trained ones, needed time to form up before engaging the enemy. This could take a while depending on the size of the army and their skill. In fact, this was often the way of assessing an army. Not just how good they could fight on the big screen, but the boring stuff. How soon a man could find his allotted place, and how quickly a section could reform to a new position at a given signal. This was the real measure of an army. Even for an experienced army, The situation the Roman column now found itself in would be near impossible, but for a non professional outfit, it was hopeless. Panic set in, each man fighting not so much for his life, but just to delay death. At the eastern end, the column met the Iberian and African infantry, and then came the slingers, who moved round and inflicted countless injuries with every volley. The Celts had charged with their gods behind them and were pushing the middle portion of the Roman column back into the lake and the cavalry at the western end either charged the Romans down or stung them with missiles. Death came for the Romans in many guises that day. Some drowned in the lake preferring a suicidal swim in armour to what was going on behind them. Others stood and were cut down on the shore. Some waded out and waited for the cavalry to pick them off in a macabre training drill, their hooves frothing up the red water. The battle, if you can call it that, lasted three hours and this has been cited as proof of Roman resolve. True, but it could also be just how long it takes to butcher thousands of men in a time before bullets. The only success was sparse and ephemeral. A unit of 6,000 Romans broke through the line at the eastern end of the shore and seeing what was happening just carried on. They were later captured by the cavalry. Of Flaminius, well, he died fighting, and in fact received rare praise by the sources. Yet even the manner of his death seemed fastened to that theme of impiety and impetuousness. According to Livy, he was run through by a warrior from the Insubrids tribe. The same tribe he disobeyed the gods and Senate to defeat and win a triumph against back in 223. What then can we make of Flaminius? As I've pointed out he's a character the sources love to hate but lifting him up and away from the pages of Polybius and Livy we might think of him as a general just outthought by one of the greats. He couldn't have let Hannibal pass him and there was no way Geminus could get to him quickly enough. But he did make errors. Perhaps he could have tailed Hannibal a bit more and tried to coordinate an attack with Geminus. But as you'll hear in the next episode Rome didn't have much truck with generals who were patient certainly he should have sent out scouts on the day but it seems as if he was unprepared for the army he faced not in terms of it being an army just the nature of it flaminius had experience of fighting and defeating celtic tribes not well drilled professional outfits and that's no disrespect in the celts by the way hannibal's army was something the roman military ecosystem wasn't prepared for a new apex predator flaminius just didn't get out of the water quick enough. The consul prior to Flaminius who had lost to Hannibal was Longus, who did so at Trebia. Now here was a character who was far more guilty of unnecessary mistakes, but Longus survived and presumably had friends who could mitigate his defeat into a bizarre set of circumstances, rather than what it was. With Flaminius dead, later writers might point to his death as the natural outcome, for one who'd made so many mistakes in dealing with Rome, and the consular office and the gods. Where Rome had lost a consul, albeit one it wasn't sure it could recognise, it had also lost a lot of men. As with any estimates of this period, it's largely guesswork, but the figure often arrived at is 15,000 dead and the rest of the army either captured or dispersed. Chasing the details on this is in some ways irrelevant. It was another Roman army which had been comprehensively dismantled. Through his ruse, Hannibal had reduced his casualties to between one and a half thousand and two and a half thousand, and perhaps this was as important as anything to him. An interesting aside is that following the victory Hannibal was able to re-equip his army with the armour and weapons taken from the dead. This is a good indication that the Carthaginian infantry fought in a similar fashion to the Roman, namely that it was sword based. Geminus, the other consul, hadn't been totally inactive. Realizing what was happening, but understanding that he wasn't able to catch up, he sent a force of 4,000 cavalry to help. But these arrived too late and were also captured, adding to the misery Rome now faced, and what misery it was. Rome was strung between shock and panic. In such a situation, it invoked an old tradition the appointment of a single figure to manage this crisis, a position known as Dictator. In the next episode, I'll pick up the story of what happened next, how the Dictator fared, and what Hannibal did. If Rome thought things couldn't get much worse, they were sorely wrong, because the battle I'll cover next, and the lead up to it, has gone down in the annals as one of Rome's darkest days. It's known as the Battle of Cannae, and cemented Hannibal's status as one of the great generals. Well, Despite the somewhat macabre nature of the content, I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you can rate or review, please do so, or just come and find me and say hello. Till next time, keep safe and stay well.